Hello, everybody, and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to invest in yourself by tuning in today. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs. We have our small business owners. We have our local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches. We have the folks who help others create their businesses, like the gentleman we're going to be interviewing today who you're going to love. And on the other side of the coin, we have the do-it-yourselfers who like to have your own hands on the levers. If you are one or more of the above, please take a moment, explore our episodes, and discover how we help you win at the game of business and marketing at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on iTunes. Just do a search for Business Creators Radio Show or go to our website and click the big banner in the sidebar. Every five-star rating on iTunes is greatly appreciated and helps us help more business creators like you. And when you subscribe, you will get fresh content added to your iTunes every single week, in addition to immediately gaining access to our library of over 150 episodes of Business Creators Radio Show on a variety of topics. So as a coach and as a consultant, as a business creator myself, I am astounded by the number of folks out there who, to this day, do not properly structure their business organizations so that they can pay lower taxes, gain higher profit, and experience greater wealth. It comes down to tax planning. It comes down to what type of advisor, what type of help you're getting, what type of fellow business creators helping you manage your accounting and your taxes. It has to do with your retirement planning, what type of corporate structure you have in place. And these are just some of the things that we love to have on the Business Creators Radio Show. And every few months, we bring somebody on who has this type of insight. And what I love is we get not only some differences between each of the viewpoints, but we also get a remarkable consistency in what each one of these guest experts says. And just from our conversation in the green room with today's guest, Mr. John Pollock at www.john, excuse me, www.johnpollockinc.com. I can tell you right now, this is going to be a fantastic hour that you're going to spend with us. And you may find some things that you can do to tighten up your business taxation and retirement structure right here, right now. But let me just tell you a little bit about John before we bring him on. In a sea of boring and outdated business advice, John is changing the conversation on how small business owners approach taxes, profit, and the path to growth. As the CEO of Financial Gravity, www.financialgravity.com, John has helped hundreds of entrepreneurs find legal, moral, and ethical ways to lower their tax, raise profit, and create wealth. What's the result? His clients can finally start living the American dream, which is a key reason they started their business in the first place. John Pollock has been featured in Forbes Magazine, Rep Magazine, and the Collin County Business Press, and is a frequent contributor on television. Uh, some of the stations he been on, has been on have included TX21, Fox 4, WFA8, and radio stations such as KRLD, KSKY, The Tax Guys Radio Show, and Financial Safari. John wrote the books, The Nest Egg Cookbook, Your Recipe for a Comfortable Retirement, and... 10 Biggest Tax Mistakes That Cost Business Owners Thousands. 
He's contributed to the books Secrets of a Tax-Free Life and Tax Breaks of the Rich and Famous. And when you come on the Business Creators Radio Show, we try and make you at least marginally more rich and famous when we can. Don Pollock, welcome aboard. Thanks for having me. All right. So before we dive in, and we have a ton of information to cover today, and one other question that our listeners know is coming up, uh, I've read off your very impressive biography, but what I'd like to do is just take a few moments at the very beginning and dig a little bit deeper, go to a deeper level, and find out what has driven you to the intersection of your brilliance and passion and what you're doing right now. So what happened was is I was a wealth management firm. So we, we I actually started out selling health insurance, got into wealth management, never really liked the financial services industry, primarily because they sell stuff, and, and most people don't want to buy the stuff that they're selling. But there is some value in it, and I started becoming successful at it. I started making a lot of money, and what happens when you make a lot of money is you start paying a lot of taxes. And right. what a lot of people don't know is that there's this there's a J curve in the tax code where – you double your income, but your taxes triple, and it's a little frustrating because it's it's like you're run you feel like you're getting you're getting traction in your business, and all of a sudden someone clamps a you know ankle weights on, and they're heavier than you could possibly imagine, and that's really the tax code. So I went, and it was during the first uh, Obama election where I kept hearing on on the news that rich people didn't pay their fair share, and I looked at my tax bill, kept thinking, gosh, this seems awfully fair to me. <laughs> right, and if there's if there's a way not to pay my fair share, I got to figure it out because this is this this isn't right. So I started interviewing CPAs, accountants. You know the typical place where most people will go to lower their taxes, and I found that the accounting industry is not trained on tax planning. Uh, in fact, I kept getting basically the same answer: you make what you make, you pay what you pay. Um, that really distilled what everybody said. And most account and all the accountants that I ran across, and I interviewed over a dozen, they couldn't help me. So because I was in wealth management, I had some done some tax planning with Medicare planning, where we lowered the interest payments so we would free up cash flow. So I took that piece of information, and I went to accountants and said, "Hey, can you help this? Since I'm paying you for the hour to tell me that you can't help me." Uh, and I have your time. Here's a client of mine. Can you help them? And I got the same question from all answer from all of them, which is no. To which I then said, well, what about this? And they looked at my strategies and said, oh, yeah, that would work. And that's when the light bulb went on. They can tell you what you can and cannot do based on the questions that you ask. They're not proactive thinkers. They're not us. We're entrepreneurs. We have a, a ability some people call it a dysfunction. Some people call it a, a superpower to see through the problems to the destination or the solution. Accountants are attracted to the accounting industry because they want to put the same number in the same box over and over and over again. It never dawns on them that that's, that number can legally be moved, and it's in your, their client's best interest to move it. And once I discovered that, the whole world kind of opened up to me, and I realized can I be the first entrepreneur to notice that there's a way to save taxes that's substantial? We're talking twenty, twenty to fifty thousand dollars per client per year. There's got to be a business out there that's doing this, and there wasn't. So that's why we created what we did, and that is now where my passion is: is helping. Because I believe that the small business owner 
is in not this isn't lip service. They're the backbone of our economy, but for some reason, no one's trying to help them. Um, financial services is trying to sell stuff to them. Accountants are just doing their books, but they're not giving them any data or helping them solve their biggest single expense, being taxes. So instead of providing lip service and saying, hey, we're the backbone of economy, I decided to build a business that actually takes the money out of the hands of the federal government where the money goes to die and put it back into the hands of the entrepreneur where it lives and flourishes. And that's now my passion. We make money at it, but the reality is, is if we can take more money out of the hands of the federal government, put it back in the hands of entrepreneurs, our whole, our whole country will be better. So we're building a business model to do that. Well, John, the good news is, is the world is starting to catch up with you. That's, that is the, the good news. Uh, the other good yeah. news is there are a number of accounting professionals out there who understand the principle of tax planning. To your point, what we are taught in entrepreneur school, so to speak, is that when you are seeking financial advice, you need to understand not only tax compliance, but also tax planning. How do you structure your income and how do you structure your business to anticipate the taxes you're going to owe and how to minimize that? As an American, as a proud American patriot, I believe in complying with all the federal, state, and local laws uh, when I understand that my tax dollars are directly benefiting my community. At the same time, I also understand that as that same patriotic American, I don't know, I'm a damn dime more than that. And I want to make sure that I get the right <laughs> advice that, uh, that, that covers that. And it pains me to pay taxes and then look at where some of this money is going. Uh, I've never had any real problem with local taxes because I can just step outside and I can see the benefit of that. But, man, when we see some, some of our tax dollars are going and the advice we're given is that's what you make, that's what you pay, that ain't right. Because Yeah, it's, 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 un, right. it's unacceptable what it is. It's, it's, right. it's, it's a travesty. And, and we've been given 70,000 pages of code. If, if they didn't want us to use the code, they wouldn't write it. So my attitude is let's use as much of it as we can. Absolutely. Now, there's a question we ask everybody here, and I have a feeling this kind of answers itself in your case, but we're going to ask it anyway just out of fairness. I'm going to do the drum roll like I do for everybody else. My cat just uh -huh. woke up, and she's all excited. So here it comes. <laughs> Here in the Business Creators Radio Show, we provide the tools, techniques, and strategies to help entrepreneurs quickly grow their businesses. A lot of our listeners tell me they have everything they need to implement anything that anybody who appears on this show, including John Pollock, tells them they need to do, except for time and money. This is something we ask everybody who appears on the Business Creators Radio Show. And what I like is not only the variety of different answers, but also the variety of different ways the question is interpreted. So, John... How do time and money impact what you're going to share with us today? As I said, in your case, it may be asked and answered, but we're going to ask the question anyway. So it's, it's two ways. So the money is obvious. If we can save you $50,000 a year in taxes and you have a 10% profit margin, that means that's a half a million dollars you don't have to earn to get the 50000 to send to the federal government. So right. the money part is simple. So that's actually the – it automatically leapfrogs to the time issue, which is if I'm saving, if I don't have to do another half a million dollars in sales in order to save $50,000, then that frees up my time. Also, we actually can use the money to buy your time back. And let me give you an example. We have a client that actually owns uh, several McDonald's franchises, six to be exact. And when we did our tax planning, we saved them so much money 
that they hired two full-time managers. That bought their time back. So the money can buy your time. Wow. That's very and interesting. And the money's already in your business. This is, this is what's interesting. This, isn't, this, is all, this is your money. We're not saying save something. In, it's, like, it's not marketing. Marketing, you know, they sell you something in hopes that you'll get an ROI. Tax planning is a guaranteed ROI. The only way to save money on taxes is to already owe it. So we're going to – it's found money. It's money that you've already earned that's sitting in your bank account that is going to be a line item, which is taxes, that we can eliminate. It's very powerful. Wow, and that it right there is kind of a mind screw that I want people to capture right now and just tighten that up a little bit. That in marketing and in products and services, we look for our return on investment. But when you're looking at tax planning, you already have the investment. You already have the return. It's about keeping more mm -hmm. of it. Did I state that right? Exactly. If I told you that your mortgage was gone – You'd like, wow, that's a, I, I, that's like a windfall. I've freed up money. I still get to live in a house, but I don't I don't have to pay the mortgage anymore. Yeah, that's what we're talking about with taxes. We're talking about taking an expense that you have to pay that you think you have to pay now, using the laws, the same laws that are telling you you have to pay it, because there's another set of laws. We actually use an illustration of red lights and green lights. What a lot of people do is they think, well. And then a lot of accountants will say, you don't want to do that because it creates a red flag. The home office is my favorite. You don't want to, do, you don't want to take a home office deduction because it's a red flag, which is nuts because there's five ways to write off a home office. If there's five ways to do it, how is it a red flag? But right. the illustration I use is think of, think of the laws like red lights and green lights. We have laws that help with traffic safety. If everybody stays at our intersection at a red light, no one will get hurt, but it's not productive. So if I choose to earn a dollar and not take any tax write-offs, that's using the red lights. But what if I want to use a green light? What if I want to take my mortgage interest, put it on Schedule A, and get the deduction? Well, if I want to do that, that's using a green light. The green light helps with the flow of traffic. It's not as safe as never going through the intersection, because never going through is I never get hurt. Using the green light is safer, but if someone runs a red light, I'm still going to get hit. But we count on the green lights to get the flow of traffic. Well, the tax code is about five pages of red lights and 70,000 pages of green lights. But because we haven't heard of all the green lights, all of a sudden that green light is a red flag? I think not. So that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to use every part of the tax code. Uh, examples, paying your kids, uh, writing off all your medical expenses. You can write off all your medical expenses through your business, including glasses, braces, massages, crutches, chiropractic, all of that can be written off in the business. You can rent your house to yourself 14 days a, uh, a year. Why 14 days? Because that's what the code says you can do. So why aren't we using it? So it's these little things that start to add up to really big dollars. It just takes some work to design the systems to make sure that they're implemented, but that's just accounting. Right. Another thing to bear in mind, too, is there's more than one way to write off automotive expenses. Uh, I'm aware of a few, one of which is you can do straight mileage, one of which is you can just declare the car as a business expense. And uh, while I have you here, let me just ask a question. This is something that comes up frequently. When it comes to having a car and you're a small business owner working out of the home, better to, better to buy or to lease, which is it? Lease. That's what I thought. That's why I've been leasing my cars 
uh, my past three cars have been leases, and my accountant gave me the same advice to lease it. So what's interesting about leases? So let's let's deal with the kind of the elephant. There's there's some very popular national radio shows where the host will talk a little bit about uh, that you want to buy, pay cash for everything. Yeah. But the and 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 I think his advice is is reasonable for his target market, which is typically you know blue collar W two workers. But I have no idea who you're talking owners. about here, John. I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but that's the target market. But for a business yeah. owner, I talk to people about the efficiency of dollars. If I'm in the 25% tax bracket, which most of the people listening are actually in higher than that tax bracket, but let's say I'm in the 25%. I earn a dollar. So let's say I earn $10,000. I pay the 25% taxes. Now I have 7500 bucks to buy the car with. So the cost to buy that car was 25%. Now, our host would say, that's good because now I own the car. What I would say is, yeah, but what if I spent the whole $10,000 to buy the car? Now I don't have to pay the taxes. The whole ten- Now, the problem is, is lease is interest. But with interest rates at 2%, the cost of the lease of 2% is far lower than the cost of the tax at 25%. And most right. people listening are probably closer to 30 to 50% in taxes, and you throw on state and all that stuff. So it's really about the efficiency of dollars. Now, as a wealth manager, I'm in agreement where what a lot of people will do is they'll lease cars that are kind of stupid. So the illustration I use is that if you're going to start a, uh, a gardening business, you don't buy a $65,000 new Toyota Tundra and lease it because the guy says it's a good tax plan. you still got to use reasonable um, – money management techniques. If you're buying, if you're starting a gardening business, you probably should buy a used, beat-up car. And one thing that people don't know, you can lease a used car. Leasing is a way of financing. So you can lease used stuff just like you can lease new stuff. So still be smart. Don't overpay for something because it's a tax deduction. And that's a, that's a big mistake a lot of people, and a lot of people that don't run businesses will say that too. Oh, you can do so-and-so because it's a tax deduction. Well, being stupid with the way you spend your money so that it's a tax deduction is not its not wise business. Right. Very true. Very true. So for our listeners here, and thanks for sharing that with me, John. I really appreciate that. For our listeners here, we have about 35 minutes of content left, and there's 12 things that John is hoping we can go by. So subscribe <laughs> on iTunes. Get the replay if you're listening live. And we're going to try and do kind of a rapid fire here and see if we can't get through all 12. John, you up to it? Bring it. Number one, why do wealthy family? Excuse me. What do wealthy family-owned businesses know about taxes that the average small business owner doesn't know? It's really they know how to play the game, and they hiring expensive people to play the game. So if there's seventy thousand pages of code, and they're going to navigate that code and use and pluck out from that code every single strategy that they can use. What's interesting about the small business owners is they'll think it's a red flag or they'll be nervous about it, where the wealthy family owners, they'll take advantage of everything. So to give you an example of employing your kids. Wealthy business owners have been employing their kids since it was part of the tax code. If I employ my kid and pay them $6,000 a year and they don't make any additional money, their tax is actually zero because the standard deduction is above 6000 so I file right. a tax return, they pay zero. So I move it from my higher bracket to their lower. Now, what some people are thinking right now, the ones that are really smart, they'll say, yeah, but, John, what about the FICA tax? you still got to pay the FICA tax. Well, that's not true. 
the tax code allows, if I, if I hire your kid, I have to pay the FICA tax. But if I hire my own kid under 18, the FICA tax is waived. So it's purely tax-free dollars. So if the government did not want me to hire my child, why would they allow me to waive one of the Social Security taxes? It's nuts. So wealthy people have been using the strategy forever because it's a great strategy. If you have a kid going to college and you pay them 1000 bucks a month, you've reduced the tax on that $1,000, and that money's going directly to the college versus me earning it, paying 50%, and then whatever's left over going to the college. So what wealthy families know is they know how to play the game, and they're not afraid to play it. So we tell small business owners all the time, play the game. Some of the game rules are really, really stupid. They'll, you'll roll your eyes and go, that cannot be in there. It's in there. Play it. If we have a tax code attached to it, which every strategy has an internal revenue code, like writing off your swimming pool. People say, yeah, I can't write off my swimming pool. You can. We'll give you the tax code that allows it. It's only a couple hundred bucks a month savings, but hey, you add that couple hundred bucks to you know, another hundred different strategies, that stuff starts to add up to real money. So play the game. Right. And as you said, if the government didn't want you to do it, why is it in the tax code? I, that's, but yeah, exactly. So there, yeah, well, you said it. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, I mean, advocates of the flat tax say, well, okay, so you will get to a point where what you, what you earn is what you owe or something like that. And maybe that's one way of doing it, but we don't have a flat tax right now. We have the system oh, we I'm have. I'm glad you brought so, this up. Yeah. No, okay, I'm go so ahead. glad you brought this up. Yeah. Er, people say this to me all the time. Hey, John, what do you, are you for the flat tax? To which I say, as a citizen, I'm for it. But as a person that lives in reality, I'm also for cheesecake not making me fat. Right. So I'm for, I'm for, I'm for things that will never happen. So why, why are we even discussing it? The Republicans pull tax levers. The Democrats pull tax levers. They both have one thing in common, tax levers. They, you will never get them to agree to eliminate the source of their power, which is pulling tax levers. So, yes, we should have one. Yes, it would be better for society. It's never going to happen. So let's just play the game with the cards that were dealt. You know, it should, maybe uh -huh. it should be this way, but there's a lot of things that should be. Everybody should be nice. There shouldn't be any terror. There shouldn't – but we have to live with the way the world is, is actually is. And we have 70,000 pages of code. If it allows us to write off, pay my kid, or use a lease, we should use it. That's right. Just like in an ideal world, every house would have five cats. That's my vision of the <laughs> ideal world. <laughs> that is a strange vision, but hey, everyone's got their own vision. Well, uh, well, my I have two personal assistants sitting right here in the office next to me, and uh, I'm kind of divided whether or not they would like to have more in. Uh, uh, yes. what, they, what they don't recognize is I'm going to buy enough food and get enough toys for all of them. But uh, who knows? I, you know, understanding the yeah, feline you know, mind is cats like are, cats are not entrepreneurs. They're scarcity thinkers. They're not abundance thinkers. You have to be careful. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> that's why they hide their toys. I have to pull out the refrigerator <laughs> every so often and sweep it out. So number two, for most entrepreneurs, and this is a great segue by the way, for most entrepreneurs, higher profits usually result in higher taxes. Is it always the case that the more money you make, the more you have to pay? Uh, if, if you don't have a tax planner, yes. If you right. do, it actually can go the other way. So the more money make, 
the amount of money that you pay goes down. I mean, look at an example. Mitt Romney was an example. I mentioned the Obama election. Mitt Romney, they said, was paying 13% taxes. Right. Well, how is that even possible? If the, the minimum tax was 15% for capital gains, how did he manage to get to 13%? And this is the stuff that never made it into the election, which was annoying. It's because he gave away 10%. So if you make $10 million and I give $1 million away, then I'm only being taxed on $9 million. The tax is still 15%, but the adjusted rate on the full $10 million ends up being lower. Uh -huh. That's a conversation. Yeah, no, no one made that conversation. The reason that his tax was below the lowest tax rate is because he gave a pile of money away, which we want. We want, we want that. Right now the tax code is written that if I give a bunch of money away, my taxes go up. So if you put your donations on Schedule A, you may trigger alternative minimum tax, which is nuts. So you make sure if you're if you're making over half a million dollars a year, and you're and you don't want to trigger alternative minimum tax. There's ways to give money away where you don't trigger an extra tax and you do lower your taxes. So that's why you really got to understand how to play the game. And the, so the answer, the short answer is, is it it could go either way. Uh, it it could increase your taxes. In fact, it increases your tax exponentially if you make more money, but you can control it. All right. So next up, John, you learned the hard way by paying lots of tax on your businesses that there are legal solutions available to lowering that tax liability. So you're not a CPA. I wanted to point that out to everybody. You're not a CPA. How did you become such an expert in the tax code? Well, one of the things I learned, and I talked a little bit about this, is that CPAs are not trained to do taxes. We actually okay. have a copy of the CPA manual in our office, and the CPA manual, which is what they study to get the exam. So CPAs objectively are very, very bright people. It's a 14-hour test, so I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. So they're, they're taking a two-day test to, to become a CPA and put that initial behind their name. However, there's nothing on the test that has anything to do with tax planning. The A stands for accounting. If you look up accountant in the dictionary, the definition basically is historian. They're a numbers historian, and they record the numbers based on the rules, general accounting principles, or if you're doing a cash versus accrual method. All very complicated stuff, all need smart people, but there's nothing in the, the CPA exam that says, if you do this, you'll pay less taxes. That's not what a CPA is trained to do. It's really a strange business problem for an entrepreneur to have to deal with. Everybody believes an entire industry does a thing that that entire industry is not trained to do. It's really a remarkable problem. I haven't solved it yet, but the best way to solve it is that spend time on shows like this and let people know CPAs don't – some CPAs can be tax planners, but because they're a CPA, they aren't automatically a tax planner. Which is what we're taught in entrepreneur school is make sure that if you're working with a CPA, that they also understand tax planning in addition to tax compliance. And I've been very exactly. fortunate so that compliance. my yeah, and I've been very fortunate that my CPA is also a tax planner, and my business has saved and earned a lot of money that way over the years. Yeah, so it's 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 very important that that distinction is made. So here's a question you can ask to determine. It's a simple question. Ask your CPA, so go to your CPA and say, can I put, tell them you want to put $10,000 into an IRA and then sit back and wait for the answer. If the CPA answers, and this will be a correct answer, 
They just say you can't do that, and that ends the discussion, fire that CPA. Because what a good CPA will do and a good tax planner or a good financial advisor will do is say, what exactly are you trying to accomplish by putting 10000 in an IRA? Because legally, you can't put $10,000 in an IRA. You can put 5000 in an IRA, and your spouse can put 5000 in an IRA, but you can't put 10000 And that's the problem with most CPAs. This is a problem with attorneys, too, is they usually answer the question you ask, not the question that you're really asking, which is, I want to defer some money. How do I do that? But most people are, are so gun-shy about their advisors that they ask specific questions to try to get specific answers. A good advisor is going to try to find out why you're asking the question. So if you ask that one question and they answer it truthfully that you can't do it and that ends the discussion, they're not a proactive planner. Right. Absolutely. So if you could just, uh, and this is question number four, just tell us specifically the difference between a CPA and if you could define for me what an EA is, just so we understand our terms clearly. Yeah, so CPA is a certified public accountant. They're taught to do accounting, general accounting principles. Right. And the EA, which is an enrolled agent, you'll see EAs at, you know, uh, an H&R block. An EA is actually licensed by the U.S. Treasury to do tax returns. So one is a tax preparer, and one is an accountant. It's more of a bookkeeper, but neither are tax planners. Right. Yeah. So an enrolled advisor, is that what it was, an enrolled advisor? Right. No, it's an enrolled agent. Enrolled agent. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I want to make sure we got our yeah. terms clear. Okay, great. Now, uh, what's beautiful about our conversation here, John, is that the, we've actually managed to skip ahead on a couple of things. So you've already answered yeah. a couple of the questions because this is just such, this is one of those wide ranging free-flowing type interviews that makes the Business Creators Radio Show so much fun. So the next question was going to be the role of the CPA and do they help with proactive tax planning, and we've already covered that distinction. But there's another question hanging out there, and this is number six. Guys, don't you just love it when we go in order here? Uh, number six, <laughs> does proactive tax planning increase audit risk? Uh, this is something that I know a lot of business creators will avoid the home office write-off or say, oh, I know I could write off the swimming pool, but I don't want to be audited. So does proactive tax planning increase audit risk? So the short answer is no. It actually reduces audit risk. So let me give a couple really? of examples. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so most of the people listening to the show right now are probably sole proprietors. If you're a sole proprietor, so here's a statistic that comes from the IRS. If you're a sole proprietor and you make over $100,000 in gross revenue, which is not a real big business, so $100,000 in gross revenue, you're a sole proprietor, you are 500% more likely to be audited than if you were an S-Corp. So if I convert you from a sole proprietor to an S-Corp, not only do I eliminate your self-employment tax, but I reduce your audit risk by 500%. So... Really, and so that's the first example of how it actually reduces your audit risk. The second, second is, is understanding what the IRS is and what the, uh, what the purpose of an audit is. The IRS is a collection agency. So if we, once you understand that, that's what they are. They're a collection agency. And if I'm a collection agency, would I go after the guy that makes a million dollars or would I go after the guy that makes $100,000? Well, I'm going to go I'm after the, go guy after the million dollars. Millions. Yeah. Right, because that's a, that's a, there's a higher likelihood that there's going to be a mistake and I'm going to be able to get some money from them. Well, what if I design your tax strategy and I turn your million dollars in cash flow 
into $100,000 in income. You still have the same million dollars in cash flow, but it's been restructured so that your tax return says $100,000. So by doing the tax, by writing off my home office, by writing off my swimming pool, by doing some of the really big stuff that we do, I mean, we have a strategy where you can stash $1.2 million a year tax-free. And the government likes the strategy so much, they increased it to $2.2 million starting in January of 2017. So why wow. wouldn't someone that's really making a lot of money use that? And if I use that, that takes $2 million off of the table that's now no longer auditable. They're not going to audit it because it doesn't, it doesn't, they don't see it. So it's, it actually reduces your risk. So playing the game is better. Now, if you don't want to take any deductions, so I make, I make $100,000, I don't take the standard deduction, I don't write off my mortgage, and I pay 25% tax on $100,000, you won't get audited on that because that's just nuts. The IRS will see it and say, this guy is crazy. He paid 100%. He didn't even take the standard deduction. They're not going to audit you because you're crazy and you're way overpaying. If your only source of charity is the federal government, the federal government will let that happen. <laughs> I just Right, exactly. That. Yeah, yeah, just like uh, if you pick up a $20 bill on the street and there's nobody around saying, hey, has anybody seen my $20 bill? That's found money. You're probably right. not so, going. You're probably, then, you're probably not going to take way. out. An, yeah, you're probably not going to take out an ad in the paper saying, "Hey, I found a twenty dollar <laughs> bill." Anybody looking for this twenty dollar bill? Yeah, and the IRS is the same way. They're like, "Wow, this guy's really overpaying his taxes." Okay. Yeah. Hey, it's you all know, right. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't get flagged. So, and lowering your taxes because think of it as a filter. Whatever hits the tax return is what they're going to audit from. That's what they're looking for. Um, and if the deductions are wrong or if the deductions are on the form, you know, if, if someone makes $100,000 and they deduct $50,000 for charitable donations, that's a red flag. Yeah. Because most people don't give away half their income. So right. that's the type of – we had a client where he made $100,000 a year, but his net worth was $10 million. He was in his 90s, so we had to get money away from his estate. So we donated $2 million one year. That client got audited. We knew it was coming. But we did the paperwork, and it was just a few phone calls, and the client didn't even have to deal with it. So that's an example of where the the tax planning in advance actually increased its audit risk. But we knew it, and, and it was still smart because he was going to have to pay 50% taxes on everything above the, the estate planning threshold, which for him would have been about $3 million. So to get audited in order not to pay $3 million in taxes was kind of a no-brainer. Right, and to deal with a few phone calls and pay somebody a couple thousand dollars to handle it, uh, to save $3 million? Yeah. That was a no-brainer. And, 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 yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and we had to do it because it, otherwise it's just the numbers were just stupid. So, And the government's like, well, there's no way a guy with 100000 income can pay – can donate $2 million. So we just had to show him that, yes, he can. This is – here's his assets. And then they just – it was basically, we're going to audit you. It was all letters. And, and a couple of phone calls. We're going to audit you because there's no way you did this. We proved that the money came from his accounts, and then they just said okay. It was it was really quite. It was completely painful for the painless for the client. Client right. didn't even deal with them at all. We did it. We did it all, and we actually included it as our, part of our service, so it was free. Yeah, great, great. Now the next two questions on the list we've actually already covered. 
uh, because it, it occurred to me, and I forgot this was on the list, to ask about buying versus yeah. leasing a car. So if you're on the replay on iTunes, scroll back and find the part about buying or leasing a car. Leasing is the answer uh, in pretty yep. much all cases. And Don also gave us some different things to think about when it comes to leasing a car. Leasing doesn't necessarily mean leasing a new car because if I start a small grass cutting business, I don't want to be putting that that lawnmower in the back of my Mazda 6 Touring Edition. I want uh, an older car for that. Right, and and I will say there are examples where buying is better. So I actually was in outside sales about 20 years ago, okay. and I was putting about 50,000 miles a year on my car. So buying that car and taking the mileage, I actually was writing off the full value of the car in spades every year. So in that example where you're doing these huge miles, it does make more sense to buy. But the average person like me right now, I live two miles from my house. So why would I buy a car? I'm not going to, the mileage isn't going to give me a great discount. Another thing is that if you do have a home office, it makes the mileage actually better. So if you are using the mileage, you really want to do the math between buy versus lease. You probably work out of your house, so it makes more sense to lease. But if you have a, a home office, the, the mileage counter starts from the time you leave your house because that's the office. So right. sometimes buying makes more sense if the mileage is really high. Because you're not going to want to lease a car and then put 50,000 miles on it because you're going to get hammered. Yeah, that that is very true. So, yeah, if you have the type of business that has you driving all the time, that's a good point. And I'm glad I mentioned the question again. And yeah. uh, we were also you know, we we're also slated to talk about why a home office is considered a red flag, and you explained to us why it isn't. Uh, you also told us there are five different ways to write off a home office. Would you be willing to sort of whisper a couple of those in our ear? Yeah, so there's the 14-day rental rule. There's depreciation, which we never recommend. Um, you can right. write off a percentage and depreciate, so we never recommend it. And the other ones are all around business use percentage. The two most common ones are, and most people don't know this, is a lot of people know that if I have a three-bedroom two-bath house that I can take my bedroom, and it's a 2,000-square-foot house. If the bedroom's, you know, 200 square feet, then I can write off 10% of a lot of stuff. I can write off 10% of my power bill and my yep. sewer bill and that type of stuff. Yep. So yep. most people know that, but what they don't know is the percentages can be changed by number of rooms. So in Texas, where our houses tend to be bigger, you know, if we have a 5,000-square-foot house and it's three-bedroom, two-bath, or I have a 1,000-square-foot house in New York that's three-bedroom, two-bath, what do I do? Well, in Texas, we use rooms because the calculations are different, and you may be able to get a higher percentage write-off than if you do straight square footage. So just be aware that there's different – and there's different – and there's the point. The IRS basically said we realize that the houses in Texas are different than the size of the houses in, in New York, so we've got to figure out a way to allow both of them to write off a reasonable amount so we came up with this thing called business use percentage. Okay, great. Awesome. So we're up to question number nine here. Actually, before we do number nine, let's do number 10. Uh, and we touched on this earlier, but now I want to go full bore on it because this is something that comes up all the time. Uh, how do you know whether you need an LLC or not? All right, so this is, a, this is one of the most misunderstood things and I don't know why. I don't know why no one's teaching this. But an LLC is a legal entity. Yes. There are only five, there are several ways you can be taxed on that legal entity: sole proprietor, S corp, C corp, 
partnership, and disregarded entity. Those are the only five ways that you can file taxes. So one of the things I'll do when I'm public speaking is I'll say, by the show of hands, who has an LLC? And virtually everyone raises their hands. By the show of hands, who files as an LLC? And everybody raises their hands. It's not true. An LLC is not a filing status. So we highly recommend LLCs because the LLC allows you to change between the different filing statuses. So I can set up an LLC. If I don't select any box, the default position is the sole proprietor. And we talked earlier in the show that the sole proprietor is the most audited form of business. So you can have an LLC that still has a high audit risk because it's filing as a sole proprietor. So make sure that your LLC, typically if you're making over $100,000 in revenue, then you probably should switch to an S-Corp anyways. But we have right. clients that have both, S-Corps and C-Corps. So, and there are reasons to have C-Corps. I actually listened to a podcast where the accountant said, oh, if someone's selling you a C-Corp, then they're just selling you something. And I, could, I almost jumped out of my chair because I could show <laughs> him mathematically that a C-Corp makes a tremendous – we have a client right now that has $700,000 in retained earnings. If he had an S-Corp, all of that money would have flowed through to his personal tax return, and he would have paid 50% on it. Because wow. it's retained in the business, he only paid 15 at the corporate tax rate – well, 15 at one level – it's, it's, it's actually the first 50000 there's no taxes on it. Above that, then there's fifteen, and then it jumps to the tax, the corporate tax rate. But the corporate tax rate is still lower than the income tax rate. And then we can move the money out of the business using some strategies that are tax-free. So he ended up still paying far less taxes in the C-Corp. But a lot of accountants who are short-sighted will say, well, you don't want a C-Corp because of the double taxation. There's only double taxation if you take out, if you pay the corporate tax and then take it as personal income. We can avoid the double taxation and get the lower tax rate on the corporation than you would on the individual level. Right. You know, you know what? Um, and this is something I've run into a number of times. Uh, believe it or not, I've been in business for 13 years, and I've cycled through more than a million dollars, much more than a million dollars, yeah. which is you know pretty good for a small business. Uh, and I still have people coming to me saying, why do you have an LLC? Why don't you just sole prop? And here's the story that was told to me 13 years ago, and I even heard as recently as three months ago, which is, you know, I'm I have a small business, and I'm a and uh, I'm a sole prop. My my friend who's a lawyer said that I don't need to do any corporation; just do a sole prop and use my social security number. So here's what I love to do. I love to say, I love to say, so your friend who's a lawyer, and, and I'm going to keep saying that phrase, your friend who's a lawyer, because there's a punchline right. here in about 30 seconds. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong about this. I, I thought I had a good accountant. I thought I had good legal advice from my own attorney, but maybe you're right. So your friend who's a lawyer, um, any chance I could speak with them? And they'll say, uh, well, I don't know if they're taking on new clients right now, but I'll check. Like, you, you kidding me? Uh, there's uh, – okay, something like this. I mean, this is, like, this is like finding that proverbial $20 bill on the sidewalk. This is something where you take on the client and you pay your paralegal to do all the paperwork and then check it. I mean, this is like gimme money for any law practice that's even remotely connected to this type of law. So you kidding me? Are they not taking on clients? Uh, I mean, this is like their, this is like paying their internet hosting bill or something like that. And yes, what it really it's, comes it's down very to very easy work. 
Right. What it, what it comes down to is when they say my friend who's a lawyer, first of all, they're usually full of it because they didn't consult with anybody. And second of all, it's their friend who's a lawyer. It's not their lawyer. Well, the other thing is, is a friend that's a lawyer, and you get this a lot with CPAs. I heard a CPA, and then you say, what yeah. kind of, and this is the, the what what kind of accountants are there? Well, they work for a, a Fortune 500 firm, so they're really a good CPA. That's nothing to do with small business. And a lawyer that is a litigator, and they're, I mean, the law profession is extremely diversified. Yeah. So when someone says my friend's a lawyer, my all my first question is, is what kind? Right. Are they a that, business yeah, lawyer? Yeah. Because a business lawyer would always recommend an LLC. Because if, if if I hear something, some advice on this podcast, and I don't like it, and I want to sue you, and I I get to sue you, your personal, because the business is, is you. But if you're an LLC, the LLC is a limited liability company. So right. even as a sole prop filing, you limit your liability. So there's no lawyer that would ever recommend doing a sole prop over an LLC. Right. That knows, yeah. knows anything. I, I know. That's why that's why we have to be careful who we take advice from because they may not be taking advice from anybody at all. That friend who's a lawyer <laughs> might be they read an article somewhere or they were <laughs> attending some free talk someplace and somebody mentioned something that sounded sort of like that offhand. So that translates and it might be to out my of friend who's a lawyer. Yeah, that could be yeah, too. So that's maybe, my maybe, first point. Maybe it was a – Someone someone said, "Well, I made I made a thousand dollars a year selling Tupperware." Well, if you do that, then you probably shouldn't be an LLC. You should probably be a sole proprietor. But that's right. not the people that we're talking to. That you know, someone that's selling a thousand dollars is not really fully engaged in their business. Right. Yet. That's very that's very true. So. Finally here, uh, we're going to, in the, in the last 10 minutes or so, I want to shift gears a little bit. Now that we've been bringing in all the money and protecting all the money and saving all the money, now it's time to think about past the business, and that word, retirement. So what is the best type of retirement plan that you would recommend? So I'm going to eliminate the one that everyone uses so that you never use it again, which is the 401k. Okay. I don't know why it became popular. I have, I have my theories, but if you don't have a if you don't have a business that has a hundred employees or or above, you should not have a 401k. They're expensive. They're complicated. They're don't do it. So there's tiers. So you start typically if you can save a few thousand dollars, you start with a, just a simple IRA. Uh, simple meaning it's easy. There is a IRA called a simple IRA that allows you to put up to fifteen thousand dollars a year. So if you earn fifteen thousand, you can put the entire fifteen thousand. You can put a hundred percent of what you earn. There's a SEP IRA that allows you to put up to fifty thousand dollars. Actually, it's a little higher than that, but fifty thousand dollars a year. But it's twenty-five percent of your income. So you would actually have to earn two hundred fifty thousand dollars in order and pay regular taxes on it in order to put the fifty thousand away. So those are the first three tiers that we look at. If you're starting to get above those tiers, there's things that you can do that are retirement planning that aren't traditional retirement accounts. So there are ways. So the way I explain it is this. Think of it as having three piles of money. Pile number one is the pile you earn. Pile number two is the pile you grow. And pile number three is the pile you distribute towards your retirement. So think of it as, as I've got to pay taxes on at least one of the piles. So an IRA says I don't pay pile I don't pay money any taxes on the pile I earn. 
I don't pay any pile money on the taxes I grow, but I do pay taxes on the, the pile that I take money from. That's the right. distribution. That's the typical IRA. So the question you have to ask is, number one, am I going to be in a lower or higher tax bracket? If you're planning to be in a lower tax bracket, fire your planner. The goal is to stay in the tax bracket or be in a higher tax bracket in perpetuity. If you're making a half a million dollars a year, you're in the 50% tax bracket, then you have to assume that you're going to stay that way. You don't want to build your plan so that you are on destitute when you're retired. That's bad planning. Number two, assuming that tax, taxes are going to go down, even if you're in the same tax bracket, is nuts. It's just not going to happen. We have a, a bazillion, trillion, quadrillion in debt, right? It's just the numbers are out of control. I don't even know what the, you know, what is, what the number of the trillions is now. It's just it's out of control. So taxes are probably going to go up. So planning to have all your eggs in the retirement basket where I'm paying taxes on the distribution is just not wise anyways. So what we try to do is avoid taxes in as many places as possible and get the taxes down. So one of the strategies is you can – the one where I said you can actually stash a million dollars plus a year – you pay no taxes on the money going in. Ironically, you pay taxes as capital gains tax rates on the gains only. So if I put in a million and I make 10%, then I have $100,000 in gains. I would pay 23.8 in taxes on that gains. But then I can take the money out tax-free. So that is actually the purest, best tax strategy. There are strategies where I can stash tons of money at the, and not pay and, and, and not have or have taxes when I earn it, but not pay taxes on growth and not pay taxes on distribution. So like the Roth IRA works that way. The problem is, is when you're making a lot of money, you don't get to do the Roth. So there are other strategies that are better than Roth. Things I would stay away from is the 401k I already mentioned. I would not buy an annuity. An annuity takes non-qualified assets, which has already been taxed. That's that first bucket. Grows it tax-free and then taxes at regular income tax rates. Remember, your primary goal is to pay the lowest regular income tax rates and not have to pay regular income tax rates. So deferring to regular income tax makes absolutely no sense. So for wealthy people doing annuities, it makes absolutely no sense. And I know how to sell annuities. We are contracted to sell annuities. I understand annuities. And because I understand them and I understand the tax code, I would never use an annuity for anybody um, that's using it for tax planning. So right. that's kind of some good rules of thumbs around retirement. But realize if you're having a lights out year, you need to you need to don't think about oh gosh I can only put tens of thousands of dollars away in a 401k or a SEP or a simple or a regular IRA. Consider that there are ways that you can put a quarter of a million dollars a year away, three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year away tax free. So that's where you have to really look at someone that knows their stuff. And this is where you're going to run into problems with the CPAs. Is even the CPAs that are good at, at proactive tax planning, they don't understand the wide array of financial services products that are out there. So, there, I mean, there's, there are some financial services products that do things that will blow your mind. And you'll want access to because they're just super cool. Um, so that's but, – but the good rules of thumb is to remember the three piles – and you want to pay the least amount of money on all three piles, so you should be planning on that. But what everybody does is they choose not to pay money on the seed, but then they end up paying money on the harvest. Don't pay money on the harvest on all of your assets. 
Maybe some of it, but not all of it. Right. I think I think I think that's very smart advice for us. So, uh, aside from that, is there anything else you can tell us about the best way to save for retirement? No, that really that's really it. I mean, the, the save save now and save often. Uh, one of the challenges with being an entrepreneur is you think that the best retirement plan is your business. If that doesn't end up being true, then you're in trouble. So I would still start to, to carve out a little bit and throw it into some accounts. Some of the more sophisticated strategies that we use that to, to reduce taxes on the front end, you actually can use for business capital later. So even an IRA, in, in, even an IRA, you can buy a self-directed IRA and start buying real estate inside the IRA. The only challenge with that is, is that if you do really well in real estate, now you have all this, these profits trapped inside of a vehicle that's taxed as regular income. Instead of had you bought it outside the IRA, it would be all capital gains, which would be a lower tax bracket. So you really need to take into consideration what are my objectives, and maybe the retirement plan, a typical retirement plan, shouldn't even be on the table. Maybe you should be doing one of these other strategies that has the same end result, I have a big pile of money for retirement, but because it's taxed differently and it's not under the retirement rules, it's taxed at a much, much lower rate. Son of a gun, we're at question number 12. We didn't exactly do them in order, but we're going to get there. We're actually going to complete the whole thing. And this, is, I think, is kind of a zinger that kind of overlaps everything we've covered today because you have opened my eyes, and I thought I was up to speed on this. I mean, you confirmed a lot of things that I knew that I've been trying to convince other people of for a long time. Uh, You've validated pretty much everything my own accountant and tax planners taught me, which is great. Uh, But uh, it's been an uphill battle getting people to see this truth. So if there are all these legal strategies from pretty much from cradle to grave, because we're talking about hiring your kids, estates, retirement, and everything else, there are all these legal strategies that I can use to lower my tax liability. Why haven't I heard about them before? It's a question a lot of people are asking. Because I think I'm an entrepreneur, and I discovered them. And because I'm an entrepreneur that I have sales skills and I'm a good communicator, I've just gotten out into the marketplace. A lot of accountants, what makes a good accountant does not make a good entrepreneur. So right. many of my entrepreneur friends – see what we're doing and want access to it, and then they go to their accountants, and accountants just aren't wired the same way. So I just really think it has to do with the – it's an industry problem. Accountants aren't taught it, and everyone's going to accountants to get the the knowledge that they're not taught. So accountants basically say there's nothing you can do because they they haven't heard about it either. And it's not their business model. Their business model, as you've mentioned, is compliance, numbers and boxes. And they're, and they're almost factory workers in a way where they're trying to put as many numbers in many boxes and on as many forms as fast as they can because they get paid by the hour and by the form, whereas we don't. So I don't know why the industry hasn't done as good a job with it, but that's why we're here is we're, we're trying to help people understand that the 70,000 pages is there. It was written for you to use, so use it. Play the game. Okay. Uh, We've been listening to John Pollock of FinancialGravity.com. And, John, we're right here near the top of the hour, so I'd like to turn over the floor for just one minute. And I know we have some people sitting on the edge of their seats for this one. And there are people saying, how can John Pollock help me? How can I interact with John Pollock? So tell us more about how you serve business creators and what you have available for us today. All right, so I have a bunch of stuff available. So there's two websites, as you mentioned, financialgravity.com and johnpollockinc.com. 
Pollock.com, I-N-C, and Pollock is P-O-L-L-O-C-K, like the fish. Right. Um, so, John, so on both of those sites, you'll have access to a couple things. Number one, there's an e-book on the 10 biggest tax myths. So we'll, we'll deal with the leasing buying, but we'll deal with a lot more stuff. Um, and it's a, it's a lot more complex. So the, the ebook is free. It's well worth the time and effort to download it. And it's on both sites, both financialgravity.com and johnpollockinc.com. Also, we have a free video series where you can go to lowertaxhigherprofit.com where I right. kind of break this stuff down and I get to draw on a whiteboard. So um, you'll get to see a little bit more. So there's a lot of stuff out there. And then if you like what you've seen from there, then give us a call and we can help you or find a local we have financial uh, advisors all over the country that we've trained in our system, so we're a national firm. Great, awesome. So, uh, just tell us the name of that ebook again. I want to make sure we get that, and and which of the sites that's available on, because I think people are going to rush to it. Yeah, so financialgravity.com and or johnpollockinc.com, okay. and it's the ten biggest tax myths. That's the it. ten biggest tax myths. All right, fantastic. Well, uh, we are right, as I said, just about the top of the hour here. So, John Pollock, financialgravity.com, johnpollockinc.com has been with us for the past hours, telling us how to lower our taxes, increase our profits, and experience greater wealth. This has been an honor, a pleasure, and an education. And on behalf of all of us, I thank you. I appreciate you having me. And for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey host of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes on businesscreatorsradioshow.com and on iTunes. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.